This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Frances Elizabeth Kroll endured her boss's sexual harassment while employed as a secretary at the Leather Workers Union in Gloversville in 1941. In a story written by Barbara Spaeth of Northville, one of Kroll's daughters, we hear Frances Kroll come to the conclusion that she needs to quit her job to avoid her immediate boss, who frequently is making passes at her. Kroll was reluctant to tell the big boss, the union president, the reason for her resignation. Ultimately, she does tell him, and he fires the offending boss, enabling Kroll, described as an excellent employee and the only woman in the office, to continue working. Kroll later married Walter Gifford, and together they raised two daughters and operated Gifford's Variety Store in Mayfield for 27 years, retiring in 1977. She also had her own tax preparation business for 35 years. She lived in Northville, died in 2017 at age 93. Barbara Spaeth's story about her mother, titled Worth So Much More, is one of 15 stories written by New York State women about their mothers or grandmothers, and the stories are anthologized in a book that came out early this year, Before They Were Our Mothers, Voices of Women, Born Before Rosie Started Riveting. Barbara Spaeth and another contributor to the anthology, Constance Dodge, read their stories during a book discussion at the Northville Public Library in August of 2018. Also speaking at the program was the editor of the anthology, the anthology Before They Were Our Mothers, who is a writer and retired public school administrator, Patricia Nugent of Hadley. We begin with my interview with Barbara Spaeth. Bob Cudmore at the Northville Public Library, and we're talking with Barbara Spaeth, who is uh, author of uh, one of the stories in the book, Before They Were Our Mothers, uh, Voices of Women Born Before Rosie Started uh, Riveting. Uh, we heard a little bit about your uh, story from uh, Patricia Nugent. Uh, it, it's really kind of a what, a precursor of the Me Too movement? Yes, it is. Um, my mother happened to tell this story to, to us during the Clarence Thomas hearings. We got talking about it at, at a Sunday dinner, and she told us her story. And I don't think she'd really spoken of it since it happened. So, Who was your mother? Frances Gifford. Mm-hmm. If you remember Gifford's store, any of your listeners might remember Gifford's store in Mayfield. She and my dad ran that store. And this was a story about sexual harassment in Gloversville, where she was working? She was working in Gloversville, yeah, at the time. She was working for the um, Leather Workers Union. Oh, for the union itself? Yes. What, what ha- I mean, I know it's your story, and uh, what, what happened to her? Well, she had been, uh, she, the way she put it to us was that he was kept making passes at her. Her boss kept making passes at her, and she managed to even though she tried very hard not to tell the union president what was going on when she put in her resignation, he insisted that she tell him why she was leaving. And when she did, when she came to work the next day, her boss had been fired because she was worth so much more than he was at the job. And she was the secretary bookkeeper, the only woman that worked in the office. What effect did that have on her life? 
I think she just knew from that point forward that she wasn't going to let anything like that happen to her again. She was a very determined woman, and she worked really hard, and she wouldn't let anybody treat her like that. But, again, it was one of those things where she had to be forced to tell the story. Mm. Well, you know, as you tell it, it puts me in mind of a story that my mother used to tell. I guess I don't know if I want to specifically place it, but, you know, she grew up in Amsterdam, and she worked in a health facility, and there was one doctor in particular that was always going after the young the young women, and I remember my mother telling me about this when she was in a nursing home not too long before she passed away, although, you know, she mentioned it over the years, but what always struck me was she would talk about it, and then she would laugh about it, you know, that what that happened, and, and also she'd laugh with uh, and one of my aunts, who also worked at this facility, and they said, oh, that guy, that guy. I, I, I don't know what that was, some kind of defense mechanism or something. I, I think so. I think they tried to laugh it off or just hide it in, in any way that they could because they felt embarrassed. They felt that they were responsible. And when this came up during the Clarence Thomas hearings and Anita Hill had done her testimony, my mother's opinion was she shouldn't have told anybody. That was just... Really? Yes. I'm looking forward to hearing your your story tonight. Barbara Spaeth, thank you very much. Barbara Spaeth's story in Before They Were Our Mothers is about her mother, Frances Kroll Gifford, and is titled Worth So Much More. A picture of Frances as a young woman is among pictures on the cover of the book. Barbara Spaeth is a retired elementary school teacher. She served on the board of Sacandaga Valley Arts Network has chaired their music committee. She and her husband live in Northville, New York. More of the Historian's podcast in a moment. This is Bob Cudmore with a plea for donations to keep the Historian's podcast in operation. We're trying to raise $5,000 this year, which would enable us to continue production of this oral history series. You can donate online at gofundme.com forward slash historians 2018 or send a check made out to me bob cudmore and send to bob cudmore 125 horstman drive scotia new york 12302 and thank you very much edinburgh artist constance dodge contributed a story to the anthology before they were our mothers about her grandmother who was descended from an infamous family of horse thieves in Sangerfield, south of Utica, called the Loomis Gang. I live in Edinburgh, New York. Oh, Edinburgh. And as I say, my daughter and son-in-law have a camp in, uh, in Edinburgh. What, what is, uh, who is your mother and what in, ge- in general is her story? Well, the, uh, actually the story is about my grandmother. I... Um, wanted to impart her story because of the shame she experienced and also the um, discrimination from, uh, from her being connected to the Loomis Gang, which was uh, a very active gang in central New York State really? that um, terrorized uh, central New York. And two generations later, my grandmother still was tormented for this uh, connection to the Loomis Gang. Really? Yes. Um, and what was her name, your grandmother? Mary Shaw. And Mary, she, excuse me, Mary Loomis. Oh, Mary Loomis. Yes. Did she marry a Shaw later or something? She did, okay. yes. 
Um, so she was a Loomis. I mean, I've never heard of the Loomis gang. Where were they working specifically, and what did they, they do? They lived in uh, south of Utica in Sangerfield, um, in a place literally uh, they, a piece of property that had the legendary Nine Mile Swamp, which had uh, quicksand and other really? exciting things people would talk about, which certainly uh, suggested many um, experiences for people where they didn't want to go into the swamp. It was a place that would be frightening for them. Did the Loomis gang dispose of people in the swamp? No, they, they didn't. No, no. They actually, what they did, they were known more for stealing horses. Mm-hmm. Um, they would take the horses and into the swamp and in that location, they would change the colors. The various gang members would go okay. in. And so, for example, they would take uh, hot potatoes and get a dappled look on a white horse. Okay. So they would get the, um, the you know, grade spotting on the, on the horse. Um, or they would use actual dyes to transform the, um, the horses huh. into uh, a different color that even the original owners wouldn't even recognize. What did your mother do for them? Um, my grandmother, actually, I'm sorry, she, did, your grandmother. She, did, she didn't have any, um, she heard the story from her father. He, he spoke um, about he the history a- of the Loomises, because the family originally came to this country in 1639, and everyone else was quite respectable, uh-huh. and they worked in profes- various professions, but there was just one renegade who decided to start, um, start, well, actually what he did was start running horses, stealing horses as a young man. And he was warned by a sheriff in Vermont to, you know, stop stealing horses where the next time he caught him, uh, George Washington Loomis was going to be hanging from a tree. That was the threat. So he went west and that the rest of the story, of course, unravels from there. Uh-huh. Now, was your grandmother's father then like an, a gangster or part no, of? No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He was a he was good and kind soul. His father, though, was a member of the gang. Okay. And um, was pursued by the law, and he eventually moved to Watertown um, after his his brother, who was the significant um, leader of the group had been killed, so he moved to Watertown to escape the law, and then eventually he had to go to Canada. Mm-hmm. And his name was Theodore Wheeler Loomis, and he dropped Loomis and just went by Theodore Wheeler in Canada. Yeah. So he was incognito. <laughs> well, Constance Dodge, thank you very much. Hey, you're welcome. What took me a while to grasp was that Constance Dodge's grandmother and her immediate family, including her father, were not actually part of the Loomis gang, but they were descended from the Loomis gang. Her grandfather and other ancestors were gang members, and the reputation of the gangsters, if you will, lingered. In 1907, Constance Dodge's grandmother, Mary Adeline Loomis, went to a new school and announced her name on the first day of class. You know how that goes in school? You know, introduce yourself, please, uh, to the class. So when she said her name was Mary Adeline Loomis, an older boy hissed, horse thief. And the story begins there and, and goes on from there. 
and uh, it's quite a tale. Constant Dodge wrote, and I quote, Writing about Mary Loomis gave me a deeper grasp of the hardships and shame my maternal grandmother faced as a child, and yet she was still able to love and care for others, especially me. The idea for the anthology, Before They Were Our Mothers, originated with Patricia Nugent of Hadley, New York, a writer and retired educational administrator in Boston Spa. This is Bob Cutmore, and we're at the Northville Public Library for a program on the book Before They Were Our Mothers. The editor of the book is with us now, Patricia Nugent. Uh, How did you come up with this idea? I came up with this idea 14 years ago at my mother's funeral when a gentleman showed up and knew stuff about my mother that I did not know. He was a high school flame. She had never mentioned him to me, and it wasn't until she died that I realized he existed. The man who showed up at Patricia Nugent's mother's funeral in 2004 turned out to be her mother's high school sweetheart, who Nugent wrote, quote, had broken her heart when he took up with and married her then best friend. Her mother, Amelia Dembowski Nugent, never told her daughter about the man who was named Eugene. I asked Patricia Nugent if she has a story in the anthology before they were our mothers. Do not. I had intended to write one, but the stories that were submitted were so compelling that uh, I only wrote the foreword and I wrote the um, acknowledgments at the end. But no, my story, my mom's story isn't in there. What is um, your background? Are you a writer? Are you a teacher? I'm a retired public school administrator. I worked in Boston Spa for decades. And in my retirement, I began to write creative nonfiction. How many um, stories do you have in this book? There are 15 stories. We had over 30 submitted. An editorial review board blindly judged the 30 stories and selected, recommended to me the 15 that ended up in the book. Do you hope to make this a series? I've been asked many times. I'm still exhausted from the first round, but I've been asked many times, could we have one about our fathers? Uh, Could we have one written by boys about their mother or men about their mother? Uh, At this point, and then we thought about a sequel to this book because people want to know what happened. Did Dorothy marry that guy? Mm -hmm. Um, But at this point, we are riding this wave, and it's the right time and the right place with the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement to be raising up women's voices. So I think we have our hands full for now. I did notice in the publicity for this uh, event at the Northville Public Library that you have at least one Me Too story about sexual harassment, I believe, in Gloversville. Yes, we do, and uh, that's Barbara Spaeth's story about her mom, and um, a classic line in her story is her best friend saying, just don't tell anyone whatever you do, and that was very much the prevailing belief, even today in some circles, don't tell anyone because, you know, it might backfire, you might get fired, but uh, we now know that that doesn't work not to tell anyone. It's a very, it's a, it's a story from the 1940s, but it's, it's very uh, current today, unfortunately. Who published uh, this? We self-published it, um, a printer in Kingston, New York. All the writers in the book are from New York State. 
The publisher is in New York State, and uh, we did get a grant from Saratoga Arts, which was a division which got funding from the New York State Council on the Arts, and um, so we self-published it. We originally, the grant allowed us to print 100 copies. So far, we've printed almost 3,000 copies, and they're they're gone. We'll be needing to buy, to print more soon. Really? You've sold 3,000 copies? Mm -hmm. Close. Um, and who prepared them? You're the editor, but it sounds like you had a committee or something of that kind. Uh, the, the nature of the grant was such that the um, author, the person who submitted the story, had to be involved in the editing of the work. And that's the way I wrote it. I wanted me not to take the stories away from the writers, but to work with them to bring out the best in the story, to add dialogue, to add description, to um, to fact check, we did a lot of fact checking because it, it's also a a history of, of women, and not just not just stories. It, you can trace women's history through the stories. Where are the books available? The books are available uh, many places. You can find it on our website uh, www.journalartspress.com. Com, and there's a, um, I think it's a purchase tab there, and it lists about 25 places. Uh, locally, where we are right now, they're available uh, a couple places in Northville, New York, the Adirondack Country Store and the Svan uh, Gallery. They're available at Micropolis um, uh, and several places. They're available online as well. Uh, they're through your website? Uh, also through Amazon, oh, okay. and although we do encourage people to support independent bookstores and, and uh, small retail enterprises, they are also available through Amazon and through other websites. Well, Patricia Nugent, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Bob. Each story in Before They Were Our Mothers was written in present tense in the first-person voice of the woman being described. The stories were selected by a panel of judges, Patricia Nugent assembled, and the judges did not know the names of the women who had submitted the stories. They kind of got the word out. They were looking for stories uh, for this book about mothers and uh, grandmothers, and they had about uh, twice as many uh, entries as uh, ended up with the stories in the book. They're I have 15 uh, stories in the book. Since the book came out, it has garnered extensive coverage in uh, media outlets. Editor Patricia Nugent wrote that her vision is the book will encourage family storytelling. And I quote, ask now before it's too late. You won't be able to Google the story of grandma's first heartbreak. The stories mainly are set in the period between two major stages of feminism, the effort for voting rights and other rights in the late 19th and early 20th century, and the feminism that developed after World War II. The stories range from 1889 to 1948. Three stories are from Rochester, one from New York City, two from central New York, and eight from the Capital District. Stories are about women leading ordinary lives who contended with war, racism, sexism, classism, disease, poverty, and degradation. These lives were also infused with determination and defiance, resilience and resistance. Patricia Nugent was uh, proud that having 
the, written the stories, uh, the women didn't have the stories taken from them. When the editing process began, uh, the editor worked directly with the individual authors. In addition to fascinating first-person accounts, Before They Were Our Mothers gives insights into world events from the late 1800s to the mid-1900s. Stories take readers across America and around the world. Here are brief summaries of the other stories in the book. Native Born by Rachel Eikens, Traveling West by Wagon Soon After the Civil War, Pregnant Julia and her husband have an adventure crossing a river before finding their new home, that an incident of 1889. An American Education by Josephine Pestulo. Frances immigrates to America, encountering many obstacles to her aspirations of getting a formal education, that from 1921. Anything is Possible by Joyce Hunt Bouyer. Betty is personally and politically empowered by her faith and nationality, that from 1927. The Boys from the Trains by Crystal Hamlink. Aldi refuses to stop feeding hobos during the Great Depression despite warnings from the authorities, that from 1931. The Apology by Catherine Ruggiero Lancy. After defending herself against bullying, Maria chooses to be punished rather than apologize. The story from 1932. Letter Never Sent by Sue Sweet Van Hook. Dorothy struggles to express her anguish over an arranged marriage and anticipated loss of her teaching job, an incident that happened in 1937. Annie's Rings by Kathy Fedorik, a love interest, offers a glimmer of refuge from the drudgery of Annie's life spent caring for her parents. That incident occurred in 1939. The Girl Who Would Bring Back the Tsar by Nadia Ghent. Natasha, forced into hiding by bombings in Europe during World War II, continues to practice the violin under the strict guidance of her mother while yearning for the life she left behind, that from 1940. Secrets by Christy O'Callaghan. Betty keeps a secret from her husband to save her young marriage while also keeping secrets at work, based on an incident of 1940. Sergeant Rogers reports for duty by Donna Jackal. Marie encounters both personal loss and opportunity while serving in the British Royal Air Force during World War II, an event that happened in 1940. Always With Me by Zoe Ann Christensen Gonza. Rosalie's young life is upended when her father dies from a talc-related lung disease, that from 1943. Southern Saratoga Soul by Carol Daggs. Ruth leaves her family in 1945 in segregated Beaufort, South Carolina, to take a job in Saratoga Springs, New York. And the Cardinal Sang by Ginny Reedman Dangler. Mary Kay, in 1948, yearns to be a writer after college graduation while realizing that the odds are against her. 
For more information about buying or stocking the book, Before They Were Our Mothers, Voices of Women, Born Before Rosie Started Riveting, or to schedule book readings or presentations, go to this website, journalartspress.com. That's journalartspress.com. Here's a story that I wrote some time ago for Focus on History in the Daily Gazette about an Amsterdam woman. She never became a mother, but she certainly had an interesting life back in the late 19th and early 20th century. Her name was Mercy Annie Allen Trapnell. She was held in high esteem in Amsterdam over a hundred years ago as an educator and organizer. She founded and was first president of the Century Club, a women's social and educational organization that still exists. She was among the founders of the Amsterdam Free Library. Her views on education were quoted regionally, and her death was front-page news. The daughter of Beriah Allen, Annie was born in December 1832 in Blue Corners, a hamlet in West Charlton. Her family moved to Church Street in Amsterdam when she was a child, and Annie was educated at Amsterdam Academy. The school was on Lower Market Street, a building Annie described as a large white structure with fine, broad piazza extending around the entire building. Annie became a teacher in Watertown in Jefferson County. In 1868, she was among the first to teach at the Normal School in Potsdam, which today is a college in the state university system. She returned home and taught at Amsterdam Academy. Reverend William Trapnell, rector of St. Anne's Episcopal Church, courted Annie for many years, and finally they wed in 1872. When the minister Trapnell left Amsterdam for a parish in Maryland, Annie went with him. She was 40, he was 60, he died four months later. Returning to Amsterdam after a European tour, Annie Trapnell lived in the Allen family home on Church Street. When she wasn't traveling, she spent the rest of her life supporting community activities in the growing mill town of Amsterdam. Trapnell taught young people English and fine arts at a Grove Street school operated by two sisters, Louise and Helen Bell. In 1895, Trapnell was teaching a course in Shakespeare to 25 women. The women each invited three friends to join what became the Century Club, as the original goal was to have 100 members. The 1945 club history said the founders wanted to share their love for books and study in a day when women had not yet been received into full intellectual equality with men. Trapnell was a charter member and secretary of the Amsterdam Free Library. She attracted regional attention in 1899 when she spoke at a Century Club meeting in favor of having schools offer young girls education in home economics. Trapnell said such a program would solve the problem of finding domestic help. Plus, she said, by having girls learn housekeeping as an educational subject, women would no longer regard housework as drudgery. Annie died on a trip to Hampton, Virginia in 1908. 
Her body arrived by train in Amsterdam. There was a huge funeral. The Century Club in Amsterdam continues to this day. The group built its current clubhouse in 1934 on Guy Park Avenue. A portrait of Annie, painted by Amsterdam artist Mary Vanderveer, was hanging at the Century Club, but some years ago, the portrait was stolen. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.